Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Crystal Kwok, movie director, outspoken talk show host and actress, tells me about coming to Hong Kong at the age of three and spending her formative years here before returning to San Francisco. She would return here a decade later to work for Golden Harvest as an actress with Dodo Cheng, Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan. She tells me about learning how to go behind the camera, her cameo as a stunt woman for Maggie Jiang and appeasing the spirits. She would go on to direct her own productions. I was born in San Francisco. Do I have to say the date? <laughs> I'm a horse. Actually, I have no trouble revealing my old age. It's fine. I color my hair. I've got lots of white roots. I've got three teenage kids. And if you really want to know the years, it's a lucky number. <laughs> well, that was a whole load of information there. <laughs> so, yeah, you're born in San Francisco. Now, when you were growing up, you're the middle of three daughters. That's right. I was the black sheep. And I remember distinctly that I was always blamed for things, even if I was not in the room. So I was the default middle troublemaker. And as a kid, what were you interested in? I loved to dance. I loved to just be in, involved in things, just challenges, active out there. Yeah. But I was quite in a shell for a long time until later on in high school. I moved to Hong Kong when I was three, so I had my first six kind of foundational years in a very Chinese setting, in a local school. So it was a very different experience, and it was quite interesting because in the summers we would come back to the States and have camp there. So I had kind of a dual shaping of my identity, right? Going to a local school, speaking only Chinese, and then going back to the States and just having this kind of a free-form life. So in a shell, you were shy? or Yes, I was quite. I mean, I still had a mouth on me, but I kept to my own circle within the family. I never really kind of crossed or challenged things outside my boundaries, no. Interesting, because I would say you're quite outgoing these days. Yeah, I think I didn't break out of my shell till, like I said, I got into theater in uh, high school, and that just kind of opened up the doors for me. What was the first theater that you saw that you thought, gosh, I'd like to get up there and act? Well, it wasn't what I saw, it was what I was involved in, because I started taking acting classes, and then I got into this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was in a proper repertory. It was ACT, the American Conservative Repertory, in San Francisco, and we had to do like 30 shows, and I had to skip school and go, and that whole experience of being with professionals who live for the stage, and the feeling of being on stage for such an extent, extensive time did something to me that made me feel like this was what I wanted. Yeah. You come to Hong Kong at the age of three. So how many years did you spend in Hong Kong initially? So my first were six years when I went there when I was three. And I went up to fourth grade and then I moved back for American fifth grade to start school there. And then I stayed till university. And when I finished undergrad, then I came back to Hong Kong. Can you remember actually coming to Hong Kong at the age of three or is it too early? I have strong memories of not specifically moving there, but images of my life during those six years. Like, you know, the tofu, the sweet tofu, the tofu fa. I remember in our old house where the old man outside would shout if you wanted some. And we would bring bowls down and he would just scoop them out with that really flat ladle and sprinkle the brown sugar. And I just, those moments are so vivid for me. And riding a bicycle down from my house and, and just awkwardly feeling out of place and yet at home 
at the local school because it was challenging. My Chinese was not good enough, and yet my parents threw me into the Chinese stream, whereas my sister got the English, the the non-Chinese stream. Uh, and so I struggled. I was flunking out of Chinese history. I remember using the calligraphy brush to write certain things, and my brush was so tattered, like it was. Just, I remember the teacher criticizing my brush, looking like a broom, because all spread out, it was supposed to be all nice and pointy, and things like that. Or the teacher criticizing my accent, because it was a British thing. So I would say plant, and she would correct me in front of class, saying it's plant, and she made me correct myself in front of the class, which was very humiliating, and and, and I didn't understand why I was wrong. So well, you weren't wrong. Exactly, but then those things stuck out. Like, okay, well, what is right or wrong, or what am I, and why is my accent different from the people here? You know. So you spend six years, and very formative years, actually, yes. in in Hong Kong. So when you then return to America and to San Francisco, were you settled straight back in, or was that again a form of acclimatization? So I was 10, right? Well, 9 or 10, fifth grade, and transitioning into middle school in the States is a very awkward time because you're growing, your body's changing, and you have the mean girls like anything during those tween years. So I was bullied a little bit because I was like this Hong Kong geek. I had a Chinese accent. I remember. I used to record <laughs> myself, you know? The transition wasn't... So when you used to record yourself, was that early radio? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I never thought about that. But when I was in Hong Kong, when we were doing our homework, and I would just secretly re press record and, and just ask my sister something really stupid just to get them to say something. And we had this recording for many years, and we played it back so I remember them, but I've lost them now. But that's funny, yeah. Something was started then, yeah. <laughs> when you return to uh, America, you have a Chinese accent on your English. Yes, I did. Um, and uh, because I only mixed with Chinese then, coming back, well, we were thrown into a school that was in Chinatown. So we were, again, we were with Chinese people, but they were Chinese Americans. And again, that's a little bit different. I felt out of place. I felt like I was teased because I was, they call them the FOBs, you know, the fresh off the boat. I wasn't quite Asian American yet, and yet I was. It, it was very weird. But again, moving in and Chinatown as my first exposure to American culture was kind of confining too, you know. It's a very small feeling to be reduced to just going to Chinatown in school. When you were growing up in San Francisco, I mean, your family, is it quite conservative? When you said, I want to do acting, whatever, mm -hmm. was that approved of? No, my dad is a typical Chinese man who didn't speak much over dinner. And my mother was amazing. She was Americanized because she was born there. So she's actually more American than me because I had lived my foundational years in Hong Kong. And so she was the one who kind of, yeah, supported me through things. I said, I want to take acting classes. I want to take piano and, and ballet and all that. And she would do it and she would just nudge my dad to pay for it. But my sisters never did anything like that. So I guess I was just interested in doing those things and she was able to support me through it. And your parents, can you tell me a little bit about them in terms of uh, what kind of work they were in? My dad, well, he's actually from a big family from Hong Kong. And I didn't know that cause when we moved to the States. You know, he was the Kwok family or whatever that means. But we never knew them growing up. We, we went to parties with them. And, yeah, it was just kind of kept from us. They wanted us to have, like, normal middle-class kind of lifestyle in the States. And so we were just doing our own thing. So who are the Kwok family then? So it's the Wing On family. 
And it's interesting to research that. And one day, hopefully, maybe I can do a documentary on it. But there's so much scandal that they would, I'd have to wait till everyone's gone before I can start that project. So there's a lot of interesting um, historical information on that side. So your dad's work was connected to that? Well, actually, see, he ended up branching out to do his own thing. He was in banking for a while, and then he ended up opening up a travel agent to just do his own business. I think his full-time job was really golf. He's a golfer. <laughs> I'm sure he paid himself every time he went to play golf. And my mother, at some point, she was doing, I don't even know what it was in real estate. She was helping with mortgages. So my parents are divorced. Obviously, it's always ugly, right, for some time. And I was in high school. And that was quite a transitional year for me, too, because there was this Cold War going on in the house, you know, before things happened. And maybe that's when I became a little more rebellious because there was this discord. She started getting a job doing graveyard shifts. She went to work for a hotel at night, so she was never around. And I ended up being the head of the household in terms of cooking and taking care of groceries. I don't know why that landed on my lap, but it did. So my father gave me, I distinctly remember, he used to give me $20 US a week to buy enough groceries to feed a family of five. Now, of course, given that this was in the late 70s, early, yeah, late 70s, I don't know what that would mean today, but still 20 US dollars. And I did it. I remember going, this was the best training I had in my entire life. I would go down the grocery store stalls and count in my head exactly to the cent how much I was putting into my cart and how much when I rang it up, it was almost to the you know dollar that I managed to maximize that amount and buy enough chicken and which cuts of chicken that would total up and be cheap enough to have like for two meals and I hated it then but in, in hindsight it was the best thing for me interesting yeah. yes but also a lot of responsibility at a young age yeah but you know what I, I enjoyed cooking and I enjoy taking care of family and I think that's what kind of built those skills for me to do that yeah when did you return to Hong Kong? Right out of college. I didn't really finish. I was my third year and I got an opportunity to come here to work at Golden Harvest in the film industry. So I, I skipped out after three years of university. Came Studying? Out I was studying theater at the time. Because that was, the, you know, going back to the Midsummer Night's Dream stories that it catapulted me into the world of theater. And so I studied that. But I thought, well, this opportunity knocked and I was able to come out here. So I took it. And I said, okay, well, I'll leave my studies for later. I had a contract with Golden Harvest for a two-year four-film contract. I did four films in that one year, and I thought, I need to go back to finish school. Otherwise, I never will. And so I did. And I'll never forget the last day of filming at the set with all these famous actors, including Dudu Cheng. And they're like, why are you leaving? You just started your career. This is not something that comes any time. This is like your time. And I was. It was I felt it. It was coming. But there was no question that I needed to go back to finish and have a degree. So I just said, well, it's, you know, it's whatever, I'm just leaving. Um, I had no regrets. But of course, when, when I came back after that final year, when I finished graduating, things did change, of course, because the tides of change and opportunities always change when you move around. But that was okay, because then I was really convinced I was wanting to go behind the scenes. I was there for acting, but that wasn't what really moved me. And so I came back with a fresher take on wanting to do on the more directing side, where I could lead the voice more than being told what to do. When you came from San Francisco to Hong Kong to work with Golden Harvest, what was your first film? It was a... And again, I remember these distinct scenes where I sat at a coffee shop with this manager lady who told me that my first film was going to be with Jackie Chan. And inside my heart, I was just, you know, 
I was ecstatic because I grew up in Chi watching Chinese movies. I watched all his films growing up. It was like my thing. And my first film was going to be with Jackie Chan. I was like, copy. but then I was that cool. I played the cool cat because I thought, oh, I can't reveal that excitement. So then I just kind of looked at her, paused, and said, well, what's my role? You know, <laughs> trying to be that stupid kind of you know, overconfident university student. So that was a film that was one of the last films that Jackie did with his, there was a trio of them that did these Chinese New Year's luck, good luck films every year. They're called Ho uh, Soi Pin. And uh, it was him and Samuel Hong and Yuan Biao, Yuan Biao, and the three of them. And so I was just thrown into this uh, kind of exciting world of these three biggest stars here and, and hanging around with these people. But I, being the kind of overconfident university student, had this kind of air about me always challenging things. So when I went to Golden Harvest, I would always ask the producers there, like, well, how come some of these Hong Kong films are so shit? You know, I would say things like that. And they're like, who is this girl, you know? Or when I had my role, I'm criticizing or questioning why I'm wearing this because it doesn't suit my character. You know, growing up in the theater or, or film world in the U.S., the United States, the best thing I think for me was that it encouraged me to challenge things, to question things. Whereas here you just stomach it, right? I think that's the biggest difference, where you just don't push against it. So I did push, and that pushing kind of brought me to where I am today, I do believe. So I questioned, and they changed my outfit, or I, I I said I didn't want to do this because I felt this way. And so it all kind of guided me on my path. So you start with Golden Harvest. So you did how many films? About four films before going back? Yeah, I did four films. And in between that time, because I was still like the student mode, and I guess maybe the producers at Golden Harvest, this one particular one, um, Leonard Ho, he was really good to me. He was tickled by my ways of you know, challenging. So he would sit me into these screening rooms at Golden Harvest and make me watch certain films to show me that they did have some quality films after all kind of thing. And he would give me private budget breakdowns of old films to show me. It was really interesting how he kind of gave this stuff to me and, and I didn't even appreciate it at the time. because so I this was Leonard Ho? Yeah. He was the number two guy at Golden Harvest after uh, Raymond Chow. He was kind of the main guy who worked with Jackie Chan in all the, all the productions that they did. I guess he had a soft spot for me and because I was so vocal he was we well, could see you were willing to learn really I yeah. guess so yeah. yeah and even Jackie I have to say he allowed me to go when I came back from finishing school is or actually the first year too he would let me follow other post-production I was just I had nothing to do you know I didn't really have that much work to do so I would follow them and every time they did like their foleying and all these sound effects and all the post-production stuff I would follow it all and I would just sit there and follow it in fact I followed them in their script writing team too and we used to go to Macau and we would just be there and they would book a room for a couple of nights where they would just kind of have to churn out scenes and jokes and little fun stories for Jackie's new ongoing films because things were booming then you know the late 80s was like the peak of the Hong Kong film industry. So they had this team of scriptwriters who were just trying to throw out different ideas, and I was part of that. And we used to go there and work. I was just like this silly, you know, young student who would just kind of tag along. And but what fantastic training! I mean, you were being exposed to everything, really. Yes, and to be exposed to things that I would challenge or say, "This is ridiculous the way they do this," you know. <laughs> but it was all good. So, what were kind of some of the plot lines? You know, this is what's so ridiculous. They would like watch some successful Hollywood film. 
and they'll literally take that scene and plant it back over and just change a little bit or not even change it. They'll just like say, okay, this one works and then let's put that into it. And it has no it has nothing to do with like, they don't even work by concept. They work by just these funny little superficial things that they plot into things. And I just thought, how interesting that, you know, Hong Kong is so superficial and even on, in the ways of making stories. So, and also, but when you were filming, I mean, was it often in studio sets for Golden Harvest or were you out in the streets? Both. So interesting, you know, recently with the whole kind of the protest, and I don't want to get political, but with the, the white shirt people, when they're talking about the triads, it brought back a memory for me because when I was filming there and sometimes when we filmed in the streets, the triads were quite actively involved with exploiting, you know, industries, particularly the film industry, because it was so strong then and it was common for us to be able to just, when, when the time came when some triads would come to maybe ask for money or cause trouble or you know they would just ship us all and put us in the van and say just stay put and then they would have the production people to talk to them outside and all would be well and then we'd go back out and do our work so they just pay them off yeah, mm, yeah. difficult yeah but there's also memories of the superstitions of hong kong that i would be kind of tickled by uh for example when we filmed outside, sometimes, you know, we didn't have mobile trailers. And when we had to go to the restroom, we would just go out in the, some place. In the, you know, if it was out in the middle of nowhere, we would find some plot of grass somewhere. And the, the people would teach us how to, before you squat and go to the bathroom, is you have to say, excuse me, just in case there's a spirit, you don't want to be insulting them. So we learned that. We say, excuse me, I'm just going to pee here, you know. And so they're like such little details of life that I got through being thrown in the film industry at the time. You carry on your studies for a year, but tell me more about Didu Cheng. She had a nickname at the time. She was called, I think it was equivalent to like Dudu 8 or something like that, because at one point she had eight films on her lap. She was so busy that she worked nonstop, overlapping like doing two shoots a day and people were just, people were so hardworking here, you know, they would just take that opportunity and do it. You just, you just sleep on the set or you do these things and, and, then, and then they don't sleep and then they play cards and they, you know, do all this stuff. But she was a typical Hong Kong, I guess, fixture that she was respected for her hardworking nature. She was personable, but she very much had her head into just focusing on her career. You know, there was nothing else. Just like Andy Lau, I'll never forget, I interviewed Andy Lau for an RTHK program, and I asked him what his values were, and I remember him saying, if it's not money, it's probably his fame. And I thought, how shallow, how superficial, how could you be just chasing money? And I was just, again, that stupid American person thinking, you know, there's got to be more to life. But it just struck me that Hong Kong, you have to, in a way, things are short-term. You just, if you don't grasp that opportunity, you might not have anything going forward. When you came back from San Francisco after a year when you'd insisted on finishing off your degree in theatre, you then move behind the camera. Did directing opportunities come along or did you have to make them? Oh, yeah, everything you have to make. And I remember my first behind-the-scenes 
post-production job was I was an assistant director to Sylvia Zheng. Now, she was a very big and well-respected filmmaker, Zheng Aijia, and uh, I was assistant director because this is a default thing for my lack of Chinese. So usually when they put you in the production side, you have to start as being a continuity person, which is the script supervisor who makes sure everything is followed by the script. So my Chinese was so bad that they couldn't put me in that position. <laughs> so by default, they upgraded me to be a second AD, and that was my first experience kind of following through with the real scale of how Hong Kong productions work. You know, ADs have to be first person on the set, last person to leave. And that after everybody finishes work, all of us crew would go out for breakfast if we, sh we finished and wrapped at 6 in the morning. And we would all, I remember, we all took out our ID cards and placed it on the table, and it would be randomly selected who would have to pay for breakfast. <laughs> and so we had, like, you know, just really wonderful memories of being on a local level with real people. And I always was more attracted to hanging out with the production people and the stuntmen than I was with the actresses. You say Dudu Jeng, you know, we all sat around each other, but I didn't have much to say to her, and she didn't have much to say to me. They were always talking about very realistic things, and I had so much more fun with the stuntmen, you know. They were real, these were the real people, you know. What kind of stunts? Oh, gosh. I had to do a stunt in one of my first films where I had to, like, swing around. I had to practice this all day. I had to, like, do this spin across a table and do, like, a thing on a chair where I push the chair down and land onto this guy's hand because I'm, like, this undercover cop or something like that. And I had to do this maneuver, and the, the stuntman patiently kind of walked me through it and did the whole thing. And... Their lives, you think about it, their whole life was just evolved around using their bodies in a very kind of back-breaking way. And then they, they ended up with nothing because after Jackie kind of disbanded his stunt team, they were on their own. And sometimes, a few years later, I would see them, like, hawking in the streets, you know? Like, yeah, difficult and also a lot of injuries. Yeah. I mean, there's no such thing as insurance here, right? I mean, I did a film with Maggie Jung, and she had gotten her um, head, she split her head because she was running under this big iron thing that dominoed over her. This was Police Story 2. And after that, because I was, again, hanging around the set doing nothing, I ended up being her stunt double. So I got to be, of course, I don't think I even got credit for that. I don't think I even got paid for that. But I had to cut my hair a certain way, and I wore all her outfits because she, she had stitches, and I had to do the rest of the film for her. And they had to maneuver how to use me without showing that I wasn't her. And this was the whole end of the film. And there was this whole explosion at the end, at the climax, and I had to run into the set to be Maggie's character and give Jackie a big hug. But that explosion was so big. Again, this is Hong Kong. They're not very, they don't, they just assume things are gonna be okay, right? And the heat from the explosion was so strong, it was just pushing at me. I didn't want to go in, but there were 10 cameras rolling, and they weren't going to, you know, give the shot. So somebody pushed me in from behind. So I just stumbled in, and I ran in, and I hugged him as tight as I could. And that's in the film, and that's me playing Maggie Jung. And it was, like, by default, I was a stunt woman. So this, is, this explosion's in a warehouse? Or, yeah. yeah. So they built this warehouse to blow up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good oh, well, well done. So you're Maggie Jeng. Well, stunt woman. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your acting and also stunt woman. Yeah. Uh, what kind of early things did you direct? So I did a fringe festival. So I did, because I was in theatre when I graduated, I took my, I guess, my one-act play that I had uh, written in college and I brought it over and I decided to stage it as part of the fringe festival. So that was my first kind of debut production. So actually theatre rather than film. Yeah, so I did that first. And that's where my first kind of 
feeling of directing something came about. And it was funny because going back to Maggie Cheung is she ended up helping me be my makeup lady <laughs> for my actresses on stage. And what was the one act play? It was a silly thing. I, it was very kind of um, metaphorical. I was, you know, into that stuff. And I, it was a dance theater piece about the love story between like water and snow that couldn't get together. It's just <laughs> silly stuff. But it was fun. And I was, I had like a Greek chorus. I was really into, you know, when you're a student, you do things like that. And it's just very revealing of where your mind is at the time. But yeah, it was fun. Yeah. And that was at the fringe. Yeah, so that was my first. And then I got on as I, you know, I got married and had kids, and I started creating stories that explored situations that I dealt with or, or friends of mine dealt with. So fertility was a big one. I had a lot of friends who actually had problems conceiving, and so I, I wrote a play called The Fertility Goddess, and it was a black comedy on how people the, the crazy ways we try to and the stressful ways we tried to conceive and, and what happens to the body and, you know, and, and sexuality, obviously. My opening scene was a, it was a climax scene, basically, and I just did voices of how, because you have to be in a plow position, basically, to, there's this kind of uh, myth that you can conceive better if you're in that position. So we, a plow position? Yes, yeah, so a yoga plow position, and just keep it there. <laughs> Make sure that sperm stays in. But, you know, I had such a great experience with that one because the fringe is a small place. Right? It only holds like 100 people. But we packed the house for a few nights, and people would come back afterwards and tell me that you hit a chord with all the real elements women have to deal with. And for me, it was like, it was very rewarding to hear that because then I knew that I was onto something. It kind of was the same time when I started my talk show on cable TV. So things were happening where I was sensitive to issues that I thought were not voiced. And so I brought that into it. So those were kind of increasingly larger projects for my directing. For film, though, the main one that I did, it took me about five years to get off the ground. It was based on kind of a personal experience. I had a, a friend who was BBC. Um, she was my roommate, British-born Chinese. And she would tell me stories about her. She was a tutor at the time, and she would tutor this girl who was a mistress. And I was fascinated by what it meant to be a mistress. And, you know, in those days, it was quite common. They say actually one in four women from the mainland were mistresses to somebody in Hong Kong. And so I kind of pursued that. So one in four women who were from the mainland here? Yes. Yeah, it was like that common at the time. Like in Happy Valley, they would call Happy Valley like the mistress town because there were all these um, apartments that were housed with these lonely, beautiful women, and they're walking their dogs at night, and they just wait for their, you know, boyfriends to come home when they felt like it. So, and also, I was dating this one Chinese actor who was much older than me, who had friends who were all businessmen who had mistresses. And so, he would sometimes take me to dinner with the girlfriends, and sometimes with the wives. So I saw both sides, and it's really intriguing. And I was, again, being that green, kind of very naive university student. It's like, what is this? Why were these women not talking? And when we leave the dinner, these girls would go back home to their own houses that were you know, funded by their boyfriends. And they had these huge diamond rings, I remember. And they had Mercedes Benz, and they all went off on their own. And it was just a, such a strange world to me that women would do that. And so I explored and used my imagination and turned it into an imaginative kind of a fantasy story of a woman and what it meant to be a mistress. And it's about this educated American woman who ends up becoming the mistress herself and doesn't know how to play the game. So it was quite involving and it was so fun because I got to control completely what I wanted to do from like 
materializing it from a thought into this whole concrete film, which was uh, critically received well. So I was happy. And that was The Mistress in, in 1999. Yeah, yeah. And I'll never forget when we went to Deauville, I went to Deauville, the Deauville Film Festival in France, because it was uh, nominated for music. My music guy was from France, and it was also nominated for the Audience Choice Award, which I won. But when I got on stage, I was pregnant with my first child then, and uh, I had a see-through dress on, and they asked me how it was to fund it. And I remember, I don't know why, I cracked a joke saying, like, I didn't have any more clothes left. <laughs> and um, it was just something that hit a chord with people. And I think in France, sexuality is, is a really you know, interesting topic for them to explore. And that's what I loved to explore anyway. Yes, it's a good place. I mean, it's it's interesting in in France versus. I mean, here it wouldn't be talked about oh at my all. God. But yeah, here, yeah. when they played it, I went in to sneak in when they were playing it, and it was one. It was totally mismarketed because the people who went to see it thought it was going to be a dirty porn film, and there was no nudity in it. But it was slapped with a category three. So you get like kitchen boys who came out at lunchtime thinking they're going to see like a dirty little film, and there's nothing. It was all like kind of this erotic fantasy, but it was more kind of an intellectualized erotic fantasy. So they were very disappointed. But it was educational. I think so. <laughs> it's a fun ride to the kind of the inner thoughts of a woman. My thanks to Crystal Kwok talking there on her early acting and directing career. Next week, Crystal tells me about the documentary that she's been working on, which tells the story of Chinese women growing up in America's segregated South. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>